Swiss banking giant UBS is buying out its ailing rival Credit Suisse. The swift and stabilizing solution was absolutely necessary. But is it enough to stabilize the banking industry after a wild week? For Sunday, March 19th, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ping Huang. This hour, Chinese President Xi Jinping visits Russia tomorrow. For Xi, meeting with Putin is very much about sending signals to Washington. We'll talk about what to expect when the two leaders meet. And we remember Clarence Fuzzy Haskins, a key member of the 70s funk band Parliament Funkadelic. And a Supreme Court case on Navajo water rights. All that and more coming up, but first, the snooze. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The Swiss bank UBS says it will take over its smaller competitor, Credit Suisse, for more than $3 billion in a government brokered deal aimed at containing a crisis of confidence in global financial markets. NPR's Rob Schmitz has more. The all-share deal between Switzerland's two largest banks will be priced at a fraction of Credit Suisse's closing price on Friday when the bank was valued at around $8 billion. The government broker deal took the unusual move of bypassing a vote by shareholders on the takeover because they were in a rush to announce a deal before Asian markets opened Monday morning. Switzerland's president of the Federal Council called the deal the best solution for restoring confidence in global financial markets. NPR's Rob Schmitz reporting. Meanwhile, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell praised the move, which they say supports financial stability. Ukrainian officials have expressed outrage over Russian President Vladimir Putin's surprise visit to the occupied city of Mariupol. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports Putin flew by helicopter from Crimea to Mariupol at night. Ukraine's defense ministry said the visit took place under cover of night, quote, as befits a thief. Darkness allows him to highlight what he wants to show and keeps the city, his army completely destroyed and its few surviving inhabitants away from prying eyes, the ministry said on social media. Presidential aide Mikhailo Podolyak said on Twitter, the criminal always returns to the crime scene, adding that, quote, the murderer of thousands of Mariupol families came to admire the ruins of the city and its graves. Russia shelled Mariupol for weeks last spring, killing thousands. Many are missing or buried in mass graves. Russia has occupied the city since last May. The Kremlin says Putin's working visit was to oversee reconstruction. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Druzkivka, Ukraine. Wyoming has now enacted some of the harshest abortion restrictions in the country. A law known as the Life is a Human Right Act went into effect this weekend. From Jackson Hole Community Radio Station KHOL, Hannah Mersbach has more. According to the CDC, Wyoming offers some of the lowest numbers of abortions in the country. Now, it'll be even more difficult to get one. It's now a felony to give an abortion in Wyoming. And provider Jovanina Anthony says she's already had to cancel three appointments. What these laws do, they force physicians like myself to choose between providing good evidence-based care and my own welfare. And that's an impossible choice to make. Anthony is one of several plaintiffs who have filed a legal challenge to halt the abortion ban. A judge will hold a hearing Wednesday. For NPR News, I'm Hannah Mersbach in Jackson, Wyoming. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. 
The St. Patrick's Day Parade in Boston drew hundreds of thousands of spectators today. Diane Tower grew up in Southie and wasn't letting the cold and wind stop her from celebrating being Irish. I got my Southie Boston hat on. I got my 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 sweater from um, Ireland. I got my leprechaun socks on, my, my Irish Guinness pants. Pictures online showed young people on tea platforms carrying plastic jugs of liquid. They resemble so-called Borgs that young people use to binge drink. South Boston liquor stores are now supposed to be closed to curb public drinking, and bars in the neighborhood will close tonight at 7.30. The traditional St. Patrick's Day breakfast was held before the parade. Mayor Michelle Wu joked about all the lawsuits filed against her office. The latest was a lawsuit over the city council redistricting maps. In case you're wondering how bad my lawsuit problem is, City councilors are suing me for signing the legislation that they passed. <laughs> love you guys. Okay, love you guys. <laughs> Among other attendees, uh, Governor Maura Healey, who attended her first breakfast as the governor. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren is calling for sweeping government investigations into banks and the regulatory problems that contributed to some bank uh, problems this week. Appearing on ABC's This Week, the Massachusetts Democrats said the giant banks are not required to follow the same rules that govern smaller financial institutions. Little community banks don't get this benefit. They got to run their shop every single day to make sure they are safe and sound. Their regulators bear down pretty hard on them. It's these giant multi-billion dollar banks. Warren supports raising the $250,000 limit on deposits insured by the FDIC. Sports this afternoon, the Bruins defeated Buffalo by a score of 7 to nothing. In the forecast, partly cloudy overnight, lows in the mid-20s, and tomorrow, sunny skies, upper 40s. Right now, 37 in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and Jarl and Pamela Moan, thanking the people who make public radio great every day and also those who listen. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ping Huang. We begin tonight's program by looking into the purchase of Swiss bank Credit Suisse by rival UBS. The emergency deal today cost about $3 billion, and it likely saved Credit Suisse from going bust. It comes just days after turmoil hit the banking market after the fall of Silicon Valley Bank. Here to talk more about the deal and what it means is NPR Stacey Vanek-Smith. Hey, Stacey. Hello. So, so how did all this start? Why did Credit Suisse find itself in crisis? Yeah, so Credit Suisse is Switzerland's second largest bank. It's nearly 170 years old. It is it is considered one of the most important banks in the world, and it was basically on the brink of failure this weekend. Uh, I spoke with Mark Williams about this. He's a professor of finance at Boston University. He also used to work as a bank examiner for the Federal Reserve. And he said the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and had investors and depositors feeling pretty panicky. Um, and also Credit Suisse has been troubled for a while. It's had a bunch of scandals and fines and reputational damage, that kind of thing. And so in this environment, with this crisis of confidence, people just started yanking billions of dollars out of Credit Suisse. Well, Credit Suisse was 15 years ago an incredibly strong and vibrant bank. And just over the last decade and a half, it's just made continual bad strategic decisions. Its deposit basis dwindled. Its stock has fallen. And it's 
just in bad shape. I'm convinced if this deal hadn't happened today, Credit Suisse would have gone bankruptcy. The Swiss government stepped in and helped to broker this deal uh, where UBS, another Swiss bank, is buying Credit Suisse for about $3 billion. And that is a pretty good deal. Actually, Credit Suisse is valued at around $8 billion. Well, Stacy, why did the government step in here and why this emergency deal on a Sunday? Yeah, so a couple of reasons. Uh, first, because letting Credit Suisse fail would have been pretty catastrophic. It's actually twice the size of Silicon Valley Bank. It is a huge bank. It's also considered pretty systemically important, uh, meaning that there's a worry that if Credit Suisse failed, it could really destabilize the whole global banking system. Uh, people might really panic, and that is what no government in the world wants right now. Uh, in fact, in a press conference this afternoon, the Swiss president said that this deal was vital to the stability of the global banking system. I think this is giving people a lot of throwback feelings to the last financial crisis, all the bailouts and government-assisted buyouts. You know, is there a risk of contagion here? And, you know, is that what's happening right now? Yeah, I think that is the question on everybody's mind. I think that's what everybody's worried about. I actually, I asked Mark Williams about this. He said this kind of thing, the failure of a bank like Credit Suisse, is exactly the kind of thing that could spark a full-on banking crisis. He, he saw this weekend really as a tipping point. Banks themselves are a canary. They represent the economic strength of that country. So when you see big names such as Credit Suisse on the ropes, and, and if they're not rescued, then that can be a global contagion. So William says that is why this government-assisted buyout on a Sunday was so important, because it sends this message out that banks will not fail, that governments won't let them. And and quickly for us, Stacey, what does this mean for UBS? I mean, it's a good deal for them. They're basically buying a rival bank at a fire sale price, um, but they're also taking on some not-so-great baggage with Credit Suisse. Um, in fact, the Swiss central bank kind of sweetened the pot, offering UBS $100 billion to help close this deal. That was NPR's Stacey Vanek-Smith. Stacey, thanks so much for sharing your reporting with us. Thank you. Tomorrow, Chinese President Xi Jinping will visit Russian President Vladimir Putin in Moscow. And the war in Ukraine is likely to top their list of things to talk about. The three-day visit comes at a crucial time, the recent one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and the Chinese government wants to help negotiate an end to the war. It also comes as Putin made a surprise visit to the Russian-occupied city of Mariupol earlier today. It's believed to be his first visit to the territory, which was taken by Russian forces last year. To learn more about the state visit between China and Russia and the relationship between these two countries, we've called Joshua Yaffa. He's a contributing writer at The New Yorker, where he's covered Russia for years, and he's author of the book Between Two Fires, Truth, Ambition, and Compromise in Putin's Russia. Joshua Yaffa, welcome. Nice to have you back on the program. Thanks for having me. So this trip was announced on Friday by both the Chinese and Russian governments. Can you talk a little bit about why this visit is such a big deal? Well, it's certainly a big deal for Putin, first and foremost, who's found himself isolated like never before in the wake of his invasion of Ukraine, now past its one-year mark. Russia has been effectively isolated entirely diplomatically, economically from the West, the United States, and the EU, losing access uh, to valuable energy markets uh, and simply becoming 
an effective pariah in Western capitals, especially in the wake of the decision by the ICC last week to indict Putin on the charge uh, of war crimes, only the second sitting leader. ICC, International Criminal Court. Yeah, That's right, right. Mm -hmm. Only the second sitting leader in in world history to face um, charges well in office. So the degree to which Putin has lost any sort of um, foothold access, legitimacy, or even prospect of ever being welcomed back into a club of legitimate leaders, even if and when the war in Ukraine somehow draws to a close. That door has really closed quite conclusively for Putin. And, and for Xi himself, there are parallel interests at play. China is engaged in what both sides, both China and the United States, admit is a long-term strategic geopolitical rivalry. Both countries see the other as the primary, if not geopolitical threat, then at least um, rival for power, influence, and effective domination of both geopolitics and economics in the 21st century. So for Xi, meeting with Putin is very much about sending signals to Washington. I think that's the primary reason why, or or rather what Xi hopes to get out of not just this meeting with Putin, but really his relationship with Russia more broadly and how can Russia be used to create a geopolitical balance to both distract the United States, sap its resources, sap its attention, and to create economic benefit for China. Yeah, so we've set the diplomatic stage for this meeting. Do we have any sense of what concretely each side wants out of these talks? Well, of course, what Russia would like is Chinese weapons. And we've seen some indications that first and foremost from the United States. So it's hard to tell what evidence or intelligence is at play here. But Secretary of State Blinken has been very direct about warning China that there would be severe consequences if it did indeed sell weapons to Russia, suggesting that such deals were very, very close to happening. But I think the real point of this meeting is symbolic, Uh, symbolic for Putin for the reasons we talked about, to show that the attempts to turn him into an international pariah have failed. Here he is hosting the leader of arguably one of the world's most powerful countries, the emerging or emerged power of the 21st century. And for Xi, it's also a way to signal to the U.S. that he can't be boxed in, he can't be intimidated, he is going to pursue China's rather ambitious geopolitical and diplomatic uh, agenda without concern for what the U.S. might think. This comes on the heels, of course, of China's successful brokering of a deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia playing a a new role for China as peacemaker in the Middle East. So that's certainly the kind of diplomatic win, symbolic or real, that that Xi will be looking for in his dealings with Putin and and by inserting himself in the Ukraine war more broadly. Now, we know that Putin keeps a tight grip on the media in Russia. Is this visit being spun by Putin in any way that you can see? Russia's television channels, which have become full-bore propaganda outlets uh, since the start of the war, are are heralding the visit as exactly what we've talked about, a sign that uh, Russia is not isolated, that Russia remains a relevant world power. Here it is hosting a summit with the leader of the most relevant emerging power of the 21st century, all signs that the Western project to isolate, uh, demean Russia, to remove it somehow from the club of legitimate nations, or Putin from the club of legitimate leaders, that that project has failed and that there's a new power order in the offing. 
And before we let you go, Joshua, you've been covering Putin and Russian politics for quite some time. So what are you going to be paying attention to the most over the course of the visit that's coming up tomorrow? I think what's really important for Putin to signal, first and foremost for his own population, even within that, the elite segment of the population, is that he is still a leader that can, on the one hand, get Russia out of this war, bring the war to a close, and to promise after that, whenever that happens, however that happens, a, a future stability that the elite can count on and the population can count on. Maybe not a return to the full status quo ante, the normal that existed before the war, but at least a, a sense of normality, political, economic, and so on. It's really important for Putin to prove that he still is a leader worth betting on. I don't think the plates have started shifting in a serious way inside Russia where Putin's rule is under immediate threat. I don't want to uh, suggest that. But over time, those will be questions that become really important. Is Putin still someone the elite wants to bet on? And if he is able to prove that he has close relations with someone like Xi and that China is still betting on him, that's an argument that he can sell to the Russian population and first and foremost to the Russian elite. That was Joshua Yaffa, contributing writer to The New Yorker. His latest book is Between Two Fires, Truth, Ambition, and Compromise in Putin's Russia. Joshua Yaffa, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm John Carpilio. And up next at 6, it's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com. Lend us your ears anywhere with the new WBUR app. Tap and listen when and how you want. Download or update in your app store now. WBUR supporters include the Harvard Art Museums with From the Andes to the Caribbean, American Art from the Spanish Empire, free on Sundays, harvardartmuseums.org. In sports, the Bruins defeated Buffalo this afternoon by a score of 7 to nothing. In the forecast, partly cloudy skies overnight, lows in the mid-20s. Tomorrow, first day of spring, sunny skies, upper 40s, Mid-50s with sunshine on Tuesday, 37 degrees now in Boston. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Swiss bank USB has agreed to buy its troubled smaller rival, Credit Suisse, in a deal worth more than $3 billion. This is financial regulators try to shore up the global banking system. Wyoming has enacted some of the toughest abortion restrictions in the country as a law went into effect today that makes offering the procedure illegal, except in the cases of rape, incest, and serious risk to the health of the fetus or the mother. The state had a trigger law in the books that would have taken effect if and when the Supreme Court overruled Roe v. Wade, which it did last summer.
At the weekend box office, Shazam! Fury of the Gods opened to a disappointing $30 million, but it did land in first place. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an all-in-one hiring platform with tools to help businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates they need to fill all their job openings. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ping Huang. While the Brexit deal was enacted in 2020, decoupling the UK and the EU has not been easy. One complicated issue has been trade, especially between the UK and Ireland. That's because the island of Ireland is comprised of two parts, the Republic of Ireland, which is still in the EU, and Northern Ireland, which is part of the UK and which, because of Brexit, is now outside the EU. That's created issues with trade, and it's also affected some long-standing tensions in the region. That's because keeping an open border between Ireland and Northern Ireland has been key to keeping the peace after decades of violence that ended in the 1990s. One of the people working on figuring out a way forward is Mary Lou McDonald. She's an Irish politician who serves as the president of the Sinn Féin party and leader of the opposition in Ireland. She's also a member of the lower house of the Irish parliament, representing Dublin. When we spoke, she told me about some of the challenges facing Ireland in the wake of the Brexit deal. When Britain was in the European uh, Union, we had uh, free and unfettered access right across uh, the European market. So it made things very, very simple, free movement of trade and people and, and so on. And when Britain then voted to leave and took the decision to Brexit, it meant that that fluid movement of people and capital and services was compromised. And this was a big, big problem for us because obviously Ireland is a small island. We have, as you've set out, come through very considerable conflict. But we, 25 years ago, we found an answer in the Good Friday Agreement to manage and mediate that conflict, to end the political violence and to create something really strong and really, really precious. And we were very, very concerned as a nation that Brexit would mean what we called a hardening of the border on the island um, of Ireland. Well, I mean, there have been recent attempts to smooth some of these trade issues. Recently, UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak announced what's known as the Windsor Framework. And so I'm wondering, also briefly, if you can, what would that change? Well, what it does is address what I've described to you as a smoothing out of some of the administrative and, and technical issues. And it will provide for greed lanes and red lanes. It will make a differentiation of goods that come from Britain into the north of Ireland for that market as against goods that come onto the island of Ireland and therefore into the European system. So I think it's just a very sensible, simple, administrative answer to what was becoming an awkward question. 
I mean, there are still some unionists in Northern Ireland. As you mentioned, this is a group that wants Northern Ireland to stay close with the UK, who do think that the Windsor framework doesn't go far enough in removing trade barriers with Britain. And so I'm wondering, how do you respond to that criticism now, given how much it does do? Well, I would simply say uh, the British government have negotiated this deal. It's their deal and it is their prerogative. They are the negotiating uh, partner. I would also say that it's not fair, frankly, for one party to hold the rest of, of society to ransom in this way and to leave us in this ongoing limbo. I mean, all of us, I mean, it's it's the case in the United States of America. It's the case in Europe, which has war now, again, on our continent. We have uh, lived through just a most extraordinary cost of living crisis, the likes of which we haven't seen for a couple of generations. And I don't think it's reasonable. I don't think it's fair. I don't think it's sustainable in circumstances like that for elected people who are elected to govern to refuse to govern and to boycott those uh, institutions. So ending ending the partition or you know unifying Ireland with Northern Ireland has been the primary goal of your party, Sinn Féin, basically for as long as it's existed. So I'm wondering, do you think that you're closer to that goal now than you have been in the past? Absolutely, and not least because of Brexit. I mean, I think when, when Brexit happened and when people in the north of Ireland voted to remain but were forced to leave... A lot of people who wouldn't, you know, wouldn't be particularly political, who may not have a particular view on the national question, on the constitutional question, suddenly were faced with asking themselves, well, what kind of country do I want to live in? And what union do I want to be part of? Do I want to be part of a a union with Britain that's insular, inward looking, isolated? Or do I want to be part of a European Union, which is expansive and outward looking? But we also have a a situation where the demographics on the island have changed. The demographics in the north have changed. The northern state, when it was created, was designed specifically a century ago to ensure that there would be a perpetual unionist majority. It was gerrymandered in that way. But last May... For the first time, Sinn Féin emerges as the biggest party and my colleague Michelle O'Neill as the first minister. That was never, ever supposed to happen. That was never in the script. So we see all of the signals of change and our job now as political leaders is to harness and guide and shape and fashion that change in a way that is constructive, in a way that is inclusive democratic and peaceful. So we have a lot of work to do. Um, and we've been saying to to friends and collaborators here in the United States that there is no question but that us finishing our, our next leg of the journey, that we will need the United States to partner with us again, as they, as they always have. Mary Lou MacDonald, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Tomorrow will mark 20 years since the U.S. invaded Iraq. The U.S. ousted Iraq's dictator, Saddam Hussein, but what followed was years of bloodshed, sectarian violence, and of the terror of suicide bombs. Now we're going to hear from the generation of Iraqis that have grown up in the years since. In Baghdad, NPR's Ruth Sherlock spoke with young Iraqis about how their lives have been shaped by the war and how they're now shaping Iraq's future. fired 600 cruise missiles at Iraq today. News reports like these from March 2003 are how Americans learned that the invasion of Iraq had started. 
In Baghdad today, Hajjad Hadi tells me how dust storms had darkened the skies in what almost seemed like an omen. I still remember that day. The sky was all orange. We would hear the, the bombs and the rockets being thrown. I'm with Hadi in a cafe with a hipster vibe. There's colorful art on the walls and young men and women smoking shisha pipes. Hadi was just nine years old when the invasion began. Now she's a PhD student studying molecular bacteriology and an assistant lecturer at the University of Baghdad. It's impressive by any measure, but even more so given that she lived in a war. We started taking shelter more and more and uh, no going out. Um, we even had days, specific days, to go grab food and come back. Most of the time in those early days of the invasion, the family had no electricity. She says her dad would sometimes use the car battery to power a radio just so that they could hear the news. Later, things got even worse. Most of our, of our teenage years were more scary-like because you would see a lot of uh, dead bodies lying on the street or you would fear for your family being taken by a bombing or being kidnapped. The crowd in this cafe represents the first generation that's grown up almost entirely since Saddam Hussein was ousted. They've lived through the years of insurgency, sectarian war, ISIS, and now a government that's elected but rife with corruption and struggling to provide public services like electricity still. Hadi says there aren't many opportunities for scientists. It's been 20 years and we're still kind of in the same loop. Other people her age are still working to realize a democracy that's something like what was promised when Saddam was ousted. One of those is Mohammed Al-Tamimi. He was six years old when American soldiers entered his grandmother's house where the family had gathered to shelter from the war. His uncle tried to stop them from roughly searching the women as well as the men. At that point, he says, several U.S. troops let him have it, kicking and punching his uncle until he was on the ground. Tamimi says his dad then threw a blanket over his head to try to protect him from seeing more. Through our interpreter, Tamimi then talks about the years that Iraq descended into violence and the failings of the new state. All this misery situation is because of the invasion of, of the Americans. Older Iraqis sometimes say the current generation just doesn't remember how bad life was under Saddam, too. Tamimi recognizes that, but says that fact doesn't make life any better now. He pulls a string of worry beads through his hands as he tells me how he's trying to make a better Iraq. He's a university student and activist. I first met him a couple of years ago during the elections that he and fellow protesters had helped to bring about. But what happened is uh, it's not what we dreamed about. The American replaced the tyrant regime by with worse people. In a local political office, Tamimi shows me videos he filmed of the massive crowds of protesters in 2019 that gathered to call for an end to corruption. The government response was brutal. Over 600 people died in the demonstrations that followed. 
Still, the movement did manage to unseat the government and force early elections under a new law that was meant to make the vote a little more representative. If the situation is improving since the time of Saddam, many Iraqis say it's in spite of the US invasion and not because of it. And it's largely the effort of these young Iraqis who yearn for the normal trappings of life found in other countries. We arrived at this upscale cafe and restaurant in Baghdad and there's a live band playing and men and women and families. A sign by the door quotes the Eagle song, you can check out any time you want, but you can never leave. I sit down with Yusuf Abbas. He's 24 and a civil engineering student and he works as a cake chef to fund his studies. He has this thick curly hair, a trendy moustache and beard and smiles a huge smile as he tells me why he loves coming here. I love the music. You love music? Yes. What kind of music do you like? Hip hop. Hip hop. I love Billie Eilish, uh, 50 Cent, uh, Tupac. He wanted to take part in the massive protests against the government, he says, but his father begged him not to go because they were so dangerous. You, you guys are like the first generation that's really grown up after the invasion happened. What do you want to see Iraq become? Like, he says he wants to see the state not so torn apart by different political parties from different religious sects. He wants a more developed healthcare and education system. And he wants Iraq to be the kind of place that people from all over would want to visit. I ask him if his is the generation that can make this happen. Yes, he says, because he believes his generation is less ideological, less sectarian than his parents' generations. There are a lot of engineers, doctors, different educated people. They can develop Iraq. It's an optimistic vision, but one that clashes pretty quickly with reality. Just moments later, he tells me that he, like so many other Iraqis, is trying through the United Nations to seek asylum abroad. There's work to be done in Iraq, he agrees, but the corruption and destruction of this country is so great, and he needs a better chance at life now. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News, Baghdad. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, comedian Adam Sandler. He gained national attention as a cast member on Saturday Night Live in the 1990s and went on a star in a number of celebrated films and TV shows. Tonight, he's being honored at the Kennedy Center. He's receiving the prestigious Mark Twain Prize for American Humor. Tune in tomorrow morning to learn about Sandler getting roasted and celebrated at tonight's event, his career trajectory, and his comedic influences. You can listen on your radio or ask your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. You're listening to NPR News. Every year, Iranians around the world celebrate No Ruse. The Persian New Year is a two-week festival that marks the start of spring. No Ruse is the new day, so things renew themselves and you should renew yourself as well. As a kid, I always felt that the sun was brighter and a bit more orange on No Ruse Day. 
That's Fatima Keshavarz. She says it's a day to make peace with friends and family. This year, the holiday comes six months into massive protests in Iran. Saraya Betzmangalich says Novruz this year is a way for people to channel their frustrations. I was asking around how people celebrated Charshambasuri, which is the last Wednesday before Novruz, and in Tehran, those who went to the parks and put on music and danced, it's like if the government says not to do it, they fight back even more by dancing. But it's not a dancing of happiness. It's a dancing of, I'm going to stick it to you. It's like a, I'm told to not show my hair, to wear hijab in a particular way. Okay, I'm just going to wear my hair down. But it's really not just about hijab. It's about how to survive the moment and do it in a way where one can control his or her fate. According to Reza Goharzad, the holiday has long been associated with defiance. Celebration of the Noru's during the history has been practice of the resistance and solidarity. When any kind of foreigners attacked Iran, Nowruz was the only one thing that people around the Nowruz gathered and they say no to the government. Fatime, who we heard from earlier, hopes the new year turns a new leaf. My new year wish is to see Iran to be a full member of the world community and to be able to feel the same normal happinesses of life that everybody has everywhere. And Saraya's hopes? I'm the daughter of someone who believed 44 years ago that in his lifetime he could go back to Iran. He's now 75 years old. I ask and I hope that my child will be able to do what he wanted to do. That it will be possible for her to know an Iran in which she can live in peace. Reza also hopes for changes in the situation that women face in Iran. They're under the big pressure of the government. 44 years, don't do this, don't do that. Woman, life, freedom. Zan Zendegi Azadi. They want to be free out of this government. And this is the Iranian new revolution. Hopefully, we will win. And in the spirit of the holiday marked by food and poetry, Fatime shares a passage by the 13th century poet Rumi. Did you hear? December, the crazy winter thief is in hiding. And the spring's prosecutors are seeking justice for everyone in grief. The spring blossoms. The spring's blossoming beauties, on the contrary, are given free reign. They will be everywhere, making life vibrant and green again. That was Saraya Betzmangalich, Associate Professor for the Study of Modern Iran at the University of Oslo in Norway, Reza Gaharzad, host of Politics Today on KIRN Radio, and Fatime Keshavarz, Director of the Roshan Institute for Persian Studies at the University of Maryland. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening. I'm John Carpilio. Thanks for being with us. Up next at 6, it's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars.
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington, hooking up with Front Porch Arts Collective to present K-I-S-S-I-N-G, a funny date-night play and love letter to our city, written by Linnell Moyes and directed by Don M. Simmons, now through April 2nd at the Huntington Calderwood BCA. Tickets available at HuntingtonTheater.org. Partly cloudy skies overnight, lows dropping into the mid-20s. Tomorrow, the first day of spring, sunny, upper 40s. And uh, sunny skies with temps in the mid-50s on Tuesday. Right now in Boston, it is 37 degrees. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Russian President Vladimir Putin made an unannounced visit to Mariupol, the occupied port city that now lies in rubble after fierce Russian attacks. Moscow illegally annexed it from Ukraine in September. Chinese leader Xi Jinping heads to Moscow tomorrow for talks with President Vladimir Putin. It'll be their first talk since Russia invaded Ukraine. She is expected to meet with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky after he meets with Putin. And comedian and actor Adam Sandler will be awarded the Kennedy Center's Mark Twain Prize for American Humor in Washington, D.C. tonight. 65-year-old Sandler, or 56-year-old Sandler, who first came to national attention on Saturday Night Live, went on to a very successful movie career with over 30 films. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ping Huang. Tomorrow, the Supreme Court will hear arguments in a case involving water rights for the Navajo Nation. The issue at hand is, what does the federal government owe to tribal nations when it comes to water and access to it for drinking and growing food? It's a pretty complex set of issues that go way back in time and could change things for the Navajo Nation going forward. We've called Gregory Oblovsky to help break things down. He's a professor at Stanford Law School, where he teaches courses on federal Indian law. Greg, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, Greg, the Supreme Court tomorrow is hearing a case related to water needs in the Navajo Nation. Help us understand what is at issue in this case. When the federal government establishes a reservation for Native peoples, the law has been since 1908 that it also then implicitly sets aside water rights for the purposes of providing agriculture and supporting the people who are going to be living on that reservation. 20 years ago, the Navajo Nation sued the federal government as the the nation's trustee, arguing that the federal government had a trust obligation to provide water to the Navajo Nation from the main stem of the Colorado River that flows actually right next to the reservation. So the question in this case is whether the federal government as the trustee is in fact obligated, it has a judicially enforceable trust obligation 
to provide that water, to figure out how much water is actually owed to the Navajo Nation from the Colorado River. Can you also just explain quickly what a trust obligation actually means? It sounds like one of these legal terms that, um, you know, I certainly haven't heard a lot before. If we think about ordinary trust law, someone might create a trust, you know, let's say for their grandchildren or their children. Or if you just have an ordinary trust, there is a trustee who manages the benefits for a beneficiary. So, you know, in this case, the beneficiary would be the grandchildren. And there's a whole body of law of trust law that applies in those circumstances. Here, the argument is, is the federal government in this same, has it established this trust with respect to the Navajo Nation and other native peoples? In other words, is the federal government the trustee and the Navajo Nation the beneficiary such that ordinary trust law principles can be applied? So uh, ordinarily, a beneficiary can sue a trustee for accounting or for mismanaging the trust corpus, as it's called, the body of the trust, which in this case would be water. And so the question is, do those ordinary principles of trust law apply in this case as well? And uh, Greg, what is the water situation on the Navajo Nation right now? You know, is is the argument from the Navajo Nation that they just don't have enough of it? I mean, the water situation on the Navajo Nation is pretty bleak. A very high percentage, almost a third, I think, of Navajo homes lack running water. And this was a major factor that contributed to the extreme outbreak of COVID that they experienced there. So the nation argues pretty forcefully that the water situation there is extreme. And of course, as we've all been seeing, the entire Southwest is going through a dramatic drought. Uh, Water levels in the Colorado River have dropped pretty dramatically. And so the nation, I think, is I mean, they initiated this lawsuit a long time ago, but the nation has long been concerned in making sure that its citizens have access to reliable, clean, safe water. And that hasn't yet happened, uh, in large part because of sort of resource constraints. So as you mentioned, this particular case focuses on getting access to water from the Colorado River in a time of drought, you know, water levels are dropping in the rivers, you said. So uh, help us understand what are the arguments on each side of the case? So the argument that the Navajo Nation is advancing is that because of this decision from 1908 called Winters, saying that the federal government implicitly reserves water rights, that decision created a trust obligation on the part of the federal government that can be enforced in court. The argument on the other side that the federal government is making, as well as several states that have intervened, is actually that that decision is not enough to actually create a judicially enforceable trust obligation. Before we let you go, we know that oral arguments are going to take place tomorrow. So what are you going to be paying attention to as the case is argued? I mean, I think what I'll be looking for in tomorrow's arguments is to see how the justices are understanding this relationship uh, between the federal government and Native nations and whether they think this 1908 decision coupled with the treaties of the Navajo Nation is enough to create that judicially enforceable trust obligation. It'll be interesting also to see how much they dive into some of the technicalities of water law and of trust law in this instance, and how much they're concerned about sort of the broader question of the difficult water situation that confronts the the U.S. West right now. That was Professor Gregory Oblavsky from Stanford Law School. Professor Oblavsky, thank you. Thank you very much. 
As the planet gets warmer, mosquitoes, fleas, and ticks are expanding their reach, and they are disease vectors. They carry in them some viruses and parasites that can make humans very sick. In the U.S., there are at least 17 different vector-borne diseases, and the number of people getting these diseases is rising. Here to tell us more is Dr. Benjamin Beard. He's the Deputy Director of Vector-Borne Diseases at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Welcome, Ben. Thank you. It's good to be here today. Yeah, so diseases spread by vectors are on the rise. What vectors are we talking about and what diseases? Yeah, so the vectors that we're talking about by and large are ticks and mosquitoes. For ticks, there's really three species of ticks that account for the diseases that we see in the U.S. And then when we talk about mosquito-borne diseases, really there are a couple of different mosquitoes that are particularly important. One is the species that carries West Nile virus, and there are actually a couple of those. And then the other is the yellow fever mosquitoes, what we used to call it, um, Aedes aegypti, and it's responsible for dengue and um, chikungunya virus and some other diseases like that. So what are some of the top diseases that you're concerned about right now? Yeah. So in the U.S., there are 16 some odd diseases, 16 or 17, that are what we consider to be reported. There's Lyme disease, anaplasmosis, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, or spotted fever rickettsiosis, babesiosis, ehrlichiosis, and then we see West Nile virus, which is, is the most common mosquito-borne disease. And then we see several other diseases that are a little bit less common, and some are travel-associated. Lyme disease is, you know, it's a very serious disease. Every year there are fatalities. If you catch it earlier, you diagnose it and you treat it, then it's usually not too eventful, but you know, it's a summertime flu. You can have arthritis and, and people have even died from early Lyme disease, carditis. The biggest problem with Lyme disease, if you don't pick it up early, and then it becomes disseminated in your body, and you, then it can become much more difficult to treat. What do we know about why these diseases are on the rise in the U.S.? Just to review some of the numbers, kind of in the last 20 or 25 years, we've seen a huge increase in all of these vector-borne diseases. Mm. The numbers of cases really have more than doubled over wow. the last 20 or 25 years. But with um, the trends we see with climate change, are we see sort of milder winters, earlier springs, longer growing seasons, fewer frost days, you know, toward the end of the year. And so what that means is that when these uh, ticks come out, they're coming out earlier in the year, and they are probably expanding their geographic distribution into more northern areas. Mm -hmm. And then with the mosquitoes, you got sort of a similar thing. So the mm -hmm. warming climate, you know, is having a, an, an impact in a number of different ways. But there are a lot of other factors going on at the same time. Yeah, so what are some of the ways that um, you use to control the mosquito and tick populations? I mean, is it as basic as just setting out a lot of mosquito traps? Like, what, what is being done? Yeah, well, it, it's, it's very different between ticks and between mosquitoes. With uh, ticks, um, it's interesting because our data actually supports that probably the majority of cases of tick-borne illness occur in people's backyards. Mm -hmm. And the methods that we recommend for tick control, first of all, is to wear repellents. They can do tick checks. 
look for ticks crawling on their body that can take uh, their clothes, throw them in the dryer on high heat for 10 minutes, and it'll kill any live ticks that are there. And then, of course, if you get a fever or a tick bite, you know, go very promptly to your healthcare provider. With mosquitoes, really, we encourage people to wear repellent when mosquito numbers are bad. And we believe that pesticides are, are a very useful tool for the control of vector-borne diseases. But we use them judiciously. And at the same time we use those, we're looking at a number of novel, more novel types of interventions, like releasing sterile mosquitoes, sterile male mosquitoes. So they, they will, will just release the males. Males don't bite, only the female mosquitoes bite and transmit disease. So if you release male mosquitoes that are sterile, they can actually mate with those wild female mosquitoes and then they don't produce any offspring. So it's been actually a way that you can control mosquito-borne diseases without using pesticides. Now, a lot of those methods are still being uh, developed and evaluated, but it's very promising. That was Dr. Benjamin Beard. He's the CDC's Deputy Director of the Division of Vector-Borne Diseases. Ben, thanks for speaking with me. Thank you, and have a nice day. When you look up at the night sky, can you see the stars? If you live in a large city or near one, the answer is probably no. The culprit is not just clouds and weather, it's light pollution, and it's getting worse every year. It's a major challenge for some astronomers as it messes with their views of space. I wanted to learn more about the light pollution problem and to see it firsthand. So this is our telescope. On a recent night, I went 25 miles west of Washington, D.C., out to George Mason University to get a look at the night sky with astronomer Peter Plavchin. He's the director of their observatory. One thing you can't control is the weather. It was overcast, humid, not a star to be seen. It was perhaps a fitting night to talk about another big challenge that blocks the view, light pollution. So research has shown that the night sky has been getting steadily brighter by about 10% a year for the past 10 years. I wonder, from your perspective, what does that, what does that mean? For as long as human civilization has existed, we've made up stories to describe what we see in the night sky, right? The origins of the myths uh, and the naming of the constellations that we have in the night sky. The night sky has been something that we've always been curious about. So in terms of light pollution, and how it's impacting us today, we're taking away that opportunity for people to be curious and to wonder about the night sky. Astronomers worry that great discoveries are more difficult to make since it's harder for them to see into space. If you go back a century, when Edwin Hubble in 1929 discovered that the universe was expanding, he did that using a 100-inch telescope at just north of Pasadena, California, and he could not make that discovery today at that same telescope. Some stargazers are trying to bring the dark sky back. Along with Professor Plavchin, I met Eileen Craigie. She's the founder of Dark Sky Friends. It's a nonprofit, and it tries to get local governments to pass rules for, quote, responsible outdoor lighting at night. These are ordinances to keep as much light out of the sky as possible. So is your, is your vision for us to kind of get back to a place where the only thing that might obscure your view of the stars is the clouds? instead of the light. Ooh, that would be really nice, I think. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's important that, um, you know, people understand that dark skies doesn't mean dark ground and that you can traverse your area safely. I was depressed, really depressed before about this, but I am getting really optimistic because there's people across the globe that are really working hard on this. 
Professor Plavchin is a little less optimistic. He says there's another growing source that's lighting up the night sky. With the launch of the increasing proliferation of satellites in low Earth orbit, which reflect a lot of sunlight down to us, we can't escape it. Astronomers are pushing back, calling for caps on night lighting from both below and above. Ping Huang, NPR News. Clarence Fuzzy Haskins, an original member of the influential musical collective Parliament Funkadelic, has died. He was 81. NPR's Chloe Veltman says the singer played a key role in shaping the funk sound of the 1970s. Clarence Fuzzy Haskins started out singing in the 1950s and 60s in New Jersey in the doo-wop vocal quintet The Parliaments. Named after the American cigarette brand, the group didn't achieve great success until they scored a hit in 1967 with I Wanna Testify. After their small Detroit record label dissolved, the Parliaments teamed up with a group known as Funkadelic and developed a whole new sound. Eventually, known as Parliament Funkadelic, or P-Funk, the musical collective made a big impact on the 1970s R&B and funk scenes. R&B editor Sheldon Pierce says it was hard to take your eyes off Haskins during P-Funk's live shows. Gyrating on stage in skin-tight bodysuits, he brought uproarious vocals to the band's songs. Haskins was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1997 along with other core P-Funk members. Hall of Fame spokesperson Dawn Waite says Haskins' vocals on songs like I Got a Thing and Miss Lucifer's Love hark back to the singer's earlier days. As Parliament Funkadelic pushed boundaries and set a futuristic pace for black music, Fuzzy Haskins kept things connected to their street corner harmony roots. P-Funk member Bootsy Collins paid tribute to Clarence Fuzzy Haskins on social media. We will miss you, my friend, bandmate and soul brother, wrote the musician on Twitter. Chloe Veltman, NPR News.